2: This is the uh, Crossroads Alpha podcast, episode number five.
1: Hello, everyone, and thanks, Jose. I'm Steve Savage. Welcome to Crossroads Alpha podcast number five. Last week, we talked about critique and the need for good critique, but we're going to do something a little more right now. We're going to talk about how you can get better at critique. We're all on the Internet. We're all giving criticism. We're all giving commentary. Let's find a way to get a little bit better at it, so... I would like to lead off in this discussion by going to one of our critics here. I do not consider myself one. Paul, Sirdar, Jose, Jason, um, who would like to begin and how to get better at this? Like most things,
3: uh, improving a critique involves practice. The more you do it, the better you get. And um, it, it really is to a great extent that simple. Uh, The more that you write, the more that you find that you get outside of your own head and start to think about things more objectively, start to create more consistent criteria, more consistent ways of looking at the world, and really also um, think more about your presentation. Uh, It's very typical when you're starting out as a reviewer to write um, lots of me or I statements and the more you get into it, the more you realize that there's a lot of you statements or it statements. You move from the first person to the third person, and a lot of that just comes from experience. In my in my take on it, what do you guys think?
4: I think you're spot on for the most part. And one thing that I want to start off with, um, as a way to you know uh, give people advice, a lot of the best criticism I've seen has come from people who had good examples, good role models to develop from. In other words, the, before they really got started with their career, they were looking at what other people were doing in this vein, and they were getting uh, getting a better idea you know, through example of how to critique something effectively. In my case, it was Roger Ebert, whose career I followed for decades when I was growing up and well into adulthood. And I liked the way that he would take something that could be potentially very difficult to critique correctly or, or very complex and he would boil it down to things that pretty much everybody could connect with. He had, he had a real knack for making things that would otherwise be you know, uh, way too sophisticated for a lay film-going audience uh, into things that pretty much anybody could think about in connection with their, with their everyday lives. And that kind of criticism is very rare, so seeing that as a living example gave me something to shoot for. I would look at something that I'd written and I would say, well, how could this be a little bit closer to something like how something like that worked?" This isn't to say that mimicking or copying his approach made sense, but that the approach that he had was something that was useful to keep in mind as a, as a direction to head in and uh, as, as, a, as a source of inspiration, really.
1: Could I, I'd like to add something um, again as a person is not as much of a critic as the other four gentlemen here. It's, I've wondered if people don't have good role models. When your role models are all internet commenters and people whose idea of it sucks being a comprehensive, detailed exploration of Dragon Age Inquisition, maybe we're not seeking out role models. If you want to be able to critique, you can't take it for face value that things you see on Steam, online, even in books or TV, are relevant. You have to seek out people that really know what they're doing. Well, it's there is a lazy.
3: There is a lot of good critique out there right now. Um, well, AV it's... Club being a, a good example, uh, where people are are used to getting insightful, deep reviews. Sorry, Jose, I, I uh, spoke Sorry, over you. go ahead. Uh, so I think there there are examples of, of good crit out there. Um, whether people actually uh, read it or not, you know what they, what they find is their own kind of personal compass, can be challenging. I know in my case, for example, uh, I I would rather kind of come up with my own take on things than do a lot of reading of other people's comments.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, um, I also want to note you I think you are someone one of the people I'd hold up as an example too. The four, in fact the four of you. I'll do very good critique. I have learned from watching what you four do.
2: I feel like, uh, just in terms of critique, like my advice, I think, is more, is kind of related to what Jason said and Getting Out of Your Own Head. And bad critique, I think, often comes from a comes from a person that doesn't quite have a lot of respect for the audience and the people they're writing mm-hmm. for. They're people that don't think about, hey, other people are reading this. And when they're, when they're critiquing, they get into their own, they get into their their own head, and they don't make observations or they don't they don't have a lot of respect for the people they're writing for. So, when I write critique, I try and think about who, who I'm, whom are, who I'm writing this for, and what they're looking for. And generally, like people like when I write indie game reviews, there are people that are like, hey, well, I want to know if this game is worth playing to me. And you know what? What do they want to know? Like, and, and I usually go from there. And I feel like when I read a lot of critique, a lot of bad ones, um, they're it's really extremely self-serving. Like it's it's like it reads like they don't have a lot of respect for the people that they're writing for. So. Well,
1: actually, that that's something I want to bring up. In that we talked about this last week, critique as an art form, as in something Roger Ebert would do. Has been replaced by sensationalism, self-serving, getting attention, page views. You know, you shit on the table, people pay attention, but it doesn't mean you created art. And well, I don't think that's necessarily true, Steve. And not, I do. Not to speak I see over you. There's a, lot of, a lot of that out stuff. there, but in the in
3: the broad marketplace of ideas on the internet, we go all the way in, in the comics world from um, you know comics journal type uh, articles that are extremely deep and insightful all the way to very much like 140 word uh, 140 chart type reviews and I think there's space for all of
0: those okay, I think actually it really also calls back on what we talked a little bit about last week uh, with what's your intention when you're writing I mean if you're if you are just wanting to advise people on purchases then you don't necessarily need to dig all that deep into the work and, you know, and rely more on reaction. For me personally, um, I think that really the best reviews, the best critical reviews, come from not just you know observing the work itself, but digging into the world around the work, uh, other types of works, mm. similar, uh, the backgrounds of the creators, the influences, and try to play with all of that to create some sort of I don't know personal zeitgeist when I start writing so it kind of works i write mostly about movies and sometimes books uh, and so there's a, there's a, there's just there should just be enough like plot summary or description of the workings of the story or the movie or whatever to ground the commentary that's being placed over top of that like like the story's the bones what you have to say about it and how you situate it in the in the world the outside world of the work is the the meat of the review, meat and the skin.
2: Context. Well, yeah. I mean, like, let me just clarify my audience comment. I mean, um, so we started our, brought up the example of Roger Ebert, for example. Like, he was great. Like, he was somebody that like knew his stuff. But you know, as a courtesy, like he also knew that who he was writing for. It's possible to do like a really really good critique. Um, for yourself and for like and not for an audience, and that's that's wonderful, and I think it I think it also works. But I mean, there's a, I think there's a difference here between doing critique that you want to be accessible to people that that to a wide audience, and one that's but, going to be accessible to
0: people that are academics or that yeah, are very that's, that's, very that's, much that's niche one of the audience. of Ebert is that he could do yeah. both. He could do a quick personal reaction to something, and then he could also take a film and break it down and spend. You know, longer than the runtime going into the symbolism and the details and the history so he was one of those who you know again it was, it's about the audience and who you're directing that toward he was able to really write to, to anybody I'm <laughs> saying
2: both are valid basically is what I'm saying like yeah, you, you yeah, can do yeah, it for anybody you want <laughs> yeah.
0: and
2: it's, and it's,
0: like it's,
1: I've been doing it's, a fair it's, it's, number of I'm oh, sorry go, go ahead Steve. well maybe in a way it's to a continuum of being able to write along different spectra but still there's that grounding if you get my point. I mean, I've been, I've been doing a few
3: 200-word reviews recently. We've been doing pieces on um, our reactions to the current DC Comics Convergence crossover. And um, that's been a completely different set of muscles that I use for my 1,500-word, 2,000-word reviews. And it's kind of enjoyable to be able to just try and crystallize everything quickly. Or more than that, just to have a quick kind of down-and-dirty, almost colloquial sort of uh, comment on things. Um, this is they're kind of trying to think things through quickly it's a great first reaction
4: that's fun yeah, yeah. what you said before about visceral the new you know about knowing yeah, your are addressing it correctly um, this is really important if, if you're trying to aim a little higher you know if you're not just as Paul said trying to produce something that will give people an idea of what to buy or what not to buy that's still valuable <laughs> and useful um, when I started doing my stuff at Gunriki, the main thing I thought of was, well, everybody, everybody out there already has such a surfeit of choices in terms of, you know, getting buying advice. I want to, I want to cut a little deeper, but at the same time, I knew that if I went too far, I would essentially be writing for myself. I wouldn't have an audience. I had to strike a balance. I had to be able to talk about the deeper meanings of things, in, again, in ways that were approachable and that related to people's direct experiences with something, and. A lot of times that does require putting your prejudices on the table and saying, you know, this thing which is thrilling to you, whoever you are, you know, most likely an average audience member, is not thrilling to me, and here's why. And then you provide a little context for that that's personal. And again, you have to balance that and make that not seem like you're just trying to make it all about you. You're trying to explain why your reactions take the form that they do. That is itself also an art form. It's a very difficult one to make into art.
1: It's almost turning the part of you that's involved into an artistic expression about the art. If that makes sense.
0: What I've noticed, something also, is when you do get more personal like that and just kind of concentrate on your immediate reaction and how that uh, affected you, I think the, the artists themselves or the filmmakers or the writers. Artists, all of them, I think they appreciate that more than any of the other stuff that we try to do. So it's not like there's not a. I, I personally prefer not to go there, but there's not. It's not like it doesn't serve some purpose, if only to, you know, let the, the creators know that they they did connect with somebody like they we're hoping to. So I guess there's 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 a there's positives there that I, I tend to try to avoid yep. personally, but, but you know,
2: who knows? Well. I mean, I guess I'm stuck on this audience question because, like, so much of that, I think, is intrinsically tied to, like, why I write reviews in the first place. Like, you know, I have a, I have a journalism background. I've, I've always written for the public. It's something I've always done. So, like, a lot of my reviews are are geared towards geared towards other people and why they would play this game and, and all of my observations are geared towards the fact that like hey is this something that somebody else wants to play or like what are the what are these flaws that are going to prevent somebody from wanting to play this and so like I would kind of like to pose a question like well like do you, guys, do you guys write for an audience or you guys think about that when you're doing these reviews or you're doing these critiques or, or are these just purely personal analysis and breakdowns of, of the things that you guys are looking at or does that change depending on, depending on the work you're looking at?
4: I do think about the audience a great deal but I don't think about them in terms of the venue or the genre. Um, my, att- my attitude is that the audience that I'm trying to address consists of people who are bright and curious and willing to admit that there may be more than one deeply uh, uh, defensible reaction to something in other words you know if i if i write a negative or middling review of something that is you know a classic and enduring and everybody loves it and so forth it's not because i think that everybody who loves that work or has been influenced by it or has been pairing the standard for it across generations is an idiot it's because i think that there is an unspoken uh, aspect to what they love that deserves to be brought to light and that they may be able to get some insight of their own from that. It doesn't mean that I'm attacking them. Sometimes this can be difficult for other people to suss out. And also, I do sometimes tend to get a little passionate and, and type with both fists. It's something I'm trying to rein in, come to think of it. But generally, I don't. I don't say to myself, I'm aiming this at this kind of anime fan or this kind of manga fan. I say to myself, I'm aiming it at this kind of intelligent person who also happens to be interested in those subjects. So before we the answer, I'm
3: curious. You say you, you sometimes get too passionate, right, with both fists as if that's a negative. Why do you see that as a negative?
4: Well, it's, it can be a net negative because if you let that get in the way of saying more nuanced things, um, it will derail you. I mean, there are times when I see stuff and I get really angry about it. I feel as if I am being asked to participate in, in something that I find you know, morally objectionable. And I really have to rein that in because I know that nobody likes a nag, nobody likes being lectured to. But at the same time, you know, if I look deeply into that and I realize that there is a kernel of truth there, I have to bring it to light somehow. I just have to find a way to do it in a way that's more modulated. I just got finished with a show that I feel is a reflection of one of the ways that modern entertainment fails us in a way. And one of the things that I wrote was that uh, – most action movies are an exploration of the idea of how an audience can vicariously enjoy murder and destruction without being made to feel too guilty about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And
4: I wrote that sentence, and I looked at it, and I said, good grief, a lot of people are going to get turned off. So I backed up a little bit and tried to explain why I was coming at it from that particular point of view. And the next you know, paragraph and a half was providing that degree of context. Instead of it just me being about berating the audience for liking something I thought was disgusting... You know, I tried to turn it into something else, a little broader. Is that berating or, or observing? That's what I'm trying to do. You know, I don't always succeed, but that's the direction I want to head in.
1: Well, one thing I wanted to bring up is sometimes typing with both fists, as you say, is also part of the respect for the audience. You have to make sure that you trust the audience enough that you can be passionate but you also have to deal with how you communicate. I think there's two sides to it. Um, If the audience can't handle intelligent criticism, that's a bit of a problem. So maybe typing with both fists the right way is also just a sign of respect.
3: Yeah, and, and I've talked about this a bit, where I often will write a first draft and only do minor revisions of it before pushing it out, which has its positives and its negatives. The positive to me is that it does have that passion, that energy, that kind of intensity to it that I, I think works well in my favor. Uh, the, I've gotten that comment both professionally and personally that it's uh, people enjoy it when I put passion behind what I'm working on. And I guard against uh, having something be too clean in a way. Um, hmm. I, I think it's important to, to convey that passion. And as an that example... As an example, we're doing a series of uh, – twelve, I guess a 14-part series on Crisis on Infinite Earths in which a group of reviewers and I are working together. And I've kind of ended up taking this role in some part as being the stage setter who kind of pulls everything together kind of emotionally to try and set the context for everybody else. And especially last week, I I had this kind of – vision of just creating something very improvisational stream of conscious just let it all flow out there as a reaction in part because there's so much other crit of that book out there but also because i think it kind of pulls us into a different place Um, i'm very conscious of trying to have that be a little bit of a differentiator for my writing versus other people's writing in that the passion and the um, sometimes frankly over the top um, approach to things can be more compelling. It's more internet
1: style. You know, that's a good point. Hmm.
4: I like that and I think that actually has a lot to it as, as a contrast to my style, which is sometimes I will, I will jot down a bunch of stuff that is very off the cuff and very from the gut and that will sometimes get spun out in whole, whole paragraphs where I will, I will be defending one of the more passionate points that I have made. And that will then sometimes get embedded in, into a more sophisticated argument. But I do find a lot of the time, when I come up with those things, I will look back on them a day later, and I will say, I can't possibly defend that. You know, I, I know that I wrote it in anger. I know that I wrote it with both fists, and not because I was trying to say something that I thought was important, but because I was, well, I was trying to, I was trying to beat the thing over my over its head. So, you know, I'm probably a little bit more uh, on the fence about the approach, as far as I'm concerned. I know that. I'm never going to be able to somebody else say to somebody else who does that, no, 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 you should hold back more or you should be more analytical because then I'm just telling them what to do.
1: Hmm. Let me add one thing here that I noticed. In all our discussions, again and again, we get back to um, what we do, what we know, how we regard it. And I think there's something I noticed from hearing all four of you talk about critique. You can't do good critique without a level of self-awareness whether it's Jason's realizing he wants something a little bit rough around the edges, whether it's Paul wanting to connect to things and add the extra, or Sirdar being conscious of his attitude. And going back to Ebert, Ebert was very aware of who he was and what he was doing. Good critique requires self-consciousness. That's one thing I'm hearing from all four of you.
2: Definitely. I mean, it takes a bit of self-awareness, I think, to do this. Correctly. A lot. I think it's I mean, a lot. it's. You know, it, you know why it does I mean it it's being aware I think of, of your biases and how and how you and how you look at things and like that's the, really the only way to do that is to be to be self-aware like, I don't think you could be a good to be a good critic and be somebody that's not that's not self-aware like that's not that's not noticing the things that you're biased against or the things that you're uh, that that you tend to be, that my if I'm talking about myself, like the things that like I uh, have an opinion on, and like be willing, I think, to put that aside a little bit, and and think about somebody else, and think about how somebody else would see this. I mean, that's the, I think that's the way, that's the way you like a starter, said, like, kind of take yourself out of it, or make make it objective, or get out of your own head, as Jason says. Is I
1: mean, well, is, is to that do that. To... To get out of yourself, you have to know yourself. as the the non-critic here, that's something that I'm seeing is a big difference between, okay, since I'm not a critic and use this shitty criticism and good criticism is the critic knows who they are and what they're doing and thinks about it, as opposed to, a thousand word rant and why Darkest Dungeon really sucks because of the use of the color red or something, which, as far as I know, hasn't happened. But it's the internet. Okay. The funny thing. You, I think sorry, like I think people that are used to the spontaneous criticism, the snarky, pointless criticism, just aren't thinking. Well, you the... have to think about it. Go on.
2: I mean, the funny sorry. part about good criticism is like sometimes, like audience members or people, people don't want that. Like. Consider what happens in what happens in video games, and when Uh, when people review a game that's like that that's really popular, and people don't people like people just totally rail on that person for like they could be prejudices confirmed. Exactly.
1: (laughs) And the thing is, you can get it on the internet, so it's almost a consumerist approach. Why aren't you pandering to me like everyone else, trying to sell me crap? And you it's what, too easy to shop for an opinion that matches yours.
2: And you—that's why you get bad criticism. Is because it's because people, because the audience and people like that push back so much against people against those like against reviewers that that like would would want to look at something objectively. Like it's it's almost it's almost not it's almost not worth it to get the hate sometimes. To well, do it properly sometimes. Yeah.
4: I've sometimes been been asked by people, you know, why did you review this really popular thing if you were just gonna take a dump on it? And, you know, I said, Well, you're, you're kinda of missing the point. I didn't review it for the sake of taking <coughs> a dump on it. I reviewed it because I felt that there was there was room for a dissenting opinion that was that was well backed up. I mean, last time I think I mentioned I was talking about reviewing Akira and then realizing, you know, I'm not really even sure I like this thing, you know. <laughs> and saying, Okay, well there's there's your point of there's your point to begin with. And it's a little easier to get away with that when you're dealing with something that is in essence so big that any attack on it is going to be almost fruitless, almost fruitless because you know, it will outlast me and any number of other people who are saying negative things about it. But there, there are some people who just – they don't want to hear a dissenting opinion because that's not why they woke up today, and that's not my audience. If, if that's the approach that they have, then I've got nothing to say to them, and I never will.
3: What's well, also sometimes important sometimes right. to go against the grain, to, to think things through in a different way, and to provide a dissenting or different viewpoint on things. Uh, I think but that's the often the most interesting way. criticism.
4: Yeah, But not in the Armand white way, where you're just doing it for the sake of, of being a contrarian. Uh, uh, sometimes be... it's fun just to be a contrarian. <laughs> go
0: ahead, <Paul. laughs> also, we, that relates to everything that you all are saying right now is you have to take into consideration that we can't even if we have as most more self knowledge than anybody we know, you know, there's still gonna be things that we miss. And um, there are gonna be different aspects of works that we're just gonna be blind to and not realize and we have to be open to that and especially I think that's what is one of the things that most most critics maybe aren't capable of of doing is being able to open up to the idea that if you don't agree with me you're You know, you're not necessarily wrong. You're seeing it differently. Um, This was driven home to me just earlier this week. Uh, A good friend of mine, uh, who whose opinions I value on film and TV and music, everything, uh, came out of Mad Max: Fury Road, uh, complaining that it, saying he hated it and that it was uh, just racist from start to finish, and he made really strong arguments situating it in the, this world of post-apocalyptic or dystopian science fiction where people of color just don't exist. It's all white people doing this and white people doing that. And even though the scenario is these old white men have destroyed the world, it still ends up being the white guy and the white woman going out and saving and you know, taking them out and taking power. And it's, it, I don't think... I think he's off base on some of this, but he raised some very, very serious issues with the film that I had just been oblivious to, concentrating just on the action and the feminist aspects of it.
1: And I've I've heard similar critiques as someone said it's Australia. Where's the Aborigines that are kinda glad all these people are gone? Right, yeah. yeah. It, it really it comes down to it's saving it's white people saving the world from some seriously white people. Yeah. It, it's the George Lucas
3: criticism of the first Star Wars, right? Same same kind of thing. There's only white
1: people in this world, and monsters. Where's, the,
3: where's anybody else?
1: Or the Lord See, of I the Rings. I so. think a lot of this reflects... The Lord of the, of the Rings idea. we know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of this reflects a problem that
4: often happens with, with a piece of criticism, which is that um, a lot of times I think people are looking for a piece of critique, looking to create a piece of critique that is all-encompassing, where you have every possible argument, every possible viewpoint, every possible pro and con laid out, um, and you're just not going to get it. I mean, one of the reasons why we have dissenting opinions is so that there can be a panoply of discussion. It's impossible to cover all the bases. You're never going to do it because you're one person and you're coming from a very specific point of view. On the other hand, that very specific point of view may be exactly what somebody else needs to hear to
0: make their world a little bit broader. Critiques are in a way like... The other direction also.
1: Critiques, in a way, are kind of like a specialist skill set. It's like, well, I'm going to bring up my personal bias, project management. There's no real general project manager, just like there's no general critic. Everyone has an approach, especially an extra and a deficit. So you have to realize that. I think with our previous discussions of people reacting poorly to critique and not understanding it is, people don't often understand that no good critic acts as the final word they are themselves. That's very important. And that they requires are a voice. To... they're not the yeah. voice. And that gets back to the idea of self-awareness. I think the worst critics coming, again, from a, a non-critic's perspective are the people that act like the voice of frickin' God. There is nothing that turns me off quicker than somebody who sits there and acts as if they are the authority. You can do it humorously. Um, Yahtzee is an example of that. Uh, he's also self-mocking. But in many cases, if someone asks like acts like the voice of authority, then that's a turn-off. That person is only selling to the audience that wants to hear that.
4: But Steve, and they let are either... a
1: question. Go ahead.
4: What, what exactly constitutes that kind of an adjective? Where, where, what do you see that makes you say to yourself, this person is just trying to be a bullhorn for God?
1: What tips you when, off? When they are making very broad statements where they brook no dissent, where they belittle other possible points of views... And where they speak with authority without backing it up, so it's,
4: it's also at least as much about the reactions that other people have and their treatment of that as it is the work itself.
1: In fact, <coughs> it becomes more about the person wanting to say something and be a voice. That's the that's the thing I know. I, a good critic is a little bit insecure and humble.
2: Yeah. Well, here's here's a problem: is that some people, some critics have enough, have quite a bit of social cachet and. And an audience, and a, a very large one at that, to drive the conversation, to drive, mm-hmm. to drive the perspective on something a certain way. They
1: want to be taste makers. They want to be taste makers. But when you're a taste maker, you're not a critic.
2: Well, that's the unfortunate part. I think is that that's kind of what happens. Is like a prevailing opinion is on 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 a work is going to be is going to be driven by somebody by by somebody with millions of followers. And I can still say it part. sucks. Oh yeah, you can. No, no question. But like, un- unfortunately, like that's what happens. Is is like other opinions and like the stuff that what Paul said is like a you know a dissenting opinion or something that's a little bit different. Usually doesn't get paid attention to, I think, as much because I mean they're of like probably a, a kind of a select few that that have an, that have an audience that can drive that opinion. And it kind of sucks.
1: You know. hmm. I had a thought that escaped me, unfortunately. Maybe it'll come back, but yeah. What can well, I say? I'm just not. I'm just not fond of it. I probably pay less attention to critics over time. Yet I seek out more criticism because I'm so <laughs> tired of bad critique. Kind of ironic that.
0: Mm-hmm. I have a question for everyone. Um, do you feel that the work you're writing about uh, sets the stage for what, how you're going to approach writing it? For example. You know, are you going to be more flippant or more or more authoritarian if depending on the work that you're, that you're addressing
3: yeah absolutely in my case uh, i mean you know paul that i tend to write different reviews based on what i'm writing about right. um i'll write a, a deep historical analysis for something that needs a historical context or um i'll write a long piece that analyzes a a, piece, a comic in a uh, complex way if it deserves that but i'll write 200 words on the latest um you know mindless crossover comic because it just doesn't require anything more than that um and even the approach that i'll take to writing this kind of um uh, seat of the pants approach that i talk about sometimes will be different depending on what i'm writing about particularly if i want to kind of stimulate people to pick something up that i feel particularly passionate about i may be more confrontational with people in my review um, I know, Sirdar, you tend to be a little more analytical than
4: that. Well, the thing that I've noticed is that when I sit down with a piece of work and I watch it and I form a bunch of you know, observations about it, I look at what I came up with and I said, what of the things that I could say about this do not seem to be the things that other people are talking about? Um, I keep harkening back to the Akira thing because it's just such a great example. But you know, every time somebody talks about you know, oh, it's this great milestone of animation, it's so influential, everything. And I said, how come nobody's talking about the fact that this work hates the human race? <laughs> so I decided to make that the center of, of the discussion there. And so, you know, when something comes in front of me, that tends to be one of the first questions I ask: What are other people not saying? And not for the sake of being contrarian, not for the sake of just you know, striking a defined pose, but the sense of you know, what what could be good to talk about in a constructive way that just seems to be off everybody else's radar. And that's, of course, not always easy to
1: find. I would think that there's always something that people aren't talking about. I mean, my first thought is it never seems anything is plumbed well enough Well, not unless you're writing a full
3: book about something, I suppose. You know, we are also constrained by the amount of space we have to put forward for something. Always, always true, always true. So, like, we did a, a long... We did that collaborative piece. Paul and I were part of it on um, Day Tripper by Gabriel Moon and Fabio
0: Ba. Which I loved, by the way.
3: Thank you. Um, and one of the luxuries with that series, and one of the reasons I think it turned out so beautifully, is we had a lot of space to write about a few issues. So there was... Um, the the ratio, so to speak, was was working in the reviewer's favor and allowed us to get deeper. Um, So that's part of it, I think. If you have the space, you can write a heck of a lot more than you can if you limit yourself in in some way.
1: Well, there's also only so much people are going to read, and I unfortunately count myself among that number, so that is a good point.
3: I think. Well, that's true. But uh, on the other hand, it, it comes back to uh, – I, I we're not there at this point, but it comes back to the point we talked about a bit last time too is who do you write for? Do you write for yourself to get these ideas out? Do you write for the readers to explore it? And, and my whole philosophy is I'm going to write what I want to write about because if I'm compelling, then they'll keep up with it. If they're not If I'm not compelling, they're going to move on. And, you know, the fact is uh, most people will move on after the first paragraph no matter how long a critique
4: is. Your audience does tend to be self-selecting, yes.
1: That's one interesting thing, too, uh, as, again, the non-critic, and I I like to emphasize that to show my lack of authority here. Um, My big experience is usually writing stuff on my Steam profiles for reviews, and I've tried to use that to get better. I think about am I giving someone the ability to make an informed decision about purchasing which is probably different than any of your other approaches here. Sure. So that's a good point. You have a certain intent.
2: I mean, writing game reviews, I think, is a little bit different, like because you're kind of acti- act- actively playing something. So, like when it comes to writing game reviews, like usually what drives the, the I guess the mood and I think the tenor of the review is the gameplay experience. Like, you know, how did I feel playing this? Was it enjoyable? You know, like did I did I did I like playing this game? Like if not, then like it's it's going to be I think reflected in the lead. It's going to be reflected, I think, in the way I the way I address my points. Um, That's a that's actually interesting because I keep saying to myself, you know, there are times
4: when I know that I've enjoyed a show tremendously and at at the same time I absolutely hate where it's coming from. You know, the (laughs) the the, the kid in me that likes to watch certain kinds of things has been tickled, but the adult in me that is aware and conscious of context and, and you know, meaning and so on has been you know rubbed the wrong way and so it's fun to take both of those impulses out put them side by side and then sort of say to the audience okay which one of these two are you more in sympathy with and why
2: and that's the approach I feel like uh, I, I kind of take it's like you know like did I feel like did I feel this way and kind of weighed it against like wait why is this happening you know like why don't I like these certain aspects and why am I so conflicted about these certain points and I kind of let my feelings guide me towards towards what what things to explore.
1: I see. Uh, hmm. So it just gives me a lot to think about here. I was I would wonder again as the non-critic, are there any books or guides people would recommend to basically getting better at it beyond the obvious lesson of just go do it. Well, one thing that I found is obviously
4: uh, a lot of what Ebert has written is in print um, yes. and is on his website, Archive for Eternity. So reading a lot of his stuff is really quite instructive, not just also his reviews but also his great movie's essays where he will take a film that he's looked at before and he will look at it in the context of it being regarded as a landmark or you know a truly – uh, extraordinary movie experience. You know, think about it a lot, a little bit more analytically than than he would with a regular review, and also his interviews. He was an excellent, excellent interviewer. He really knew how to draw out stuff from people and make that, um, give that, give that stuff the context that it deserved. Um, there's another, uh, there's another critic and author, a fellow named Edwin, w- Edwin Wilson, who lived in uh, from the 20s through the 60s. I think was like the span of his career very long-lived, very very prolific, and he wrote a lot of stuff that's really interesting to me today because he was he was also, he was both a book and a movie critic, among other things, and some of the stuff we critiqued on the movie side um, are things from the early days of film, back when film was just barely beginning to be understood as an entertainment, let alone an art form, and so it's really instructive to see him talk about things like the early Marx Brothers movies in that life, <laughs> and... Some of them are wonderfully dissenting. You know, we like to think of like all the Marx Brothers movies just basically fit in one bucket, which is a classic. And he was sitting there taking them apart one by one and saying, "No, this wasn't actually. This was actually a really terrible film." And it was wonderfully enlightening to read stuff like that from the from the time, you know, from from the moment when this stuff was new and had not been sitting on a shelf for 50 years.
1: Uh, the primal the primal reactions when we're not just following along or being contrarian, but that visceral. In the moment experience that takes you into connecting to the work so you can analyze it and comment on it. A slight tangent, but you know, I've been working on uh, history books of comics
3: history for my American Comic Book Chronicle series. And um, one of the things that I found fascinating and really kind of empowering for writing this book, th- these books rather, is to go back to the original commentary or even the hype around books. When they were first coming out, um, oh, thankfully absolutely. the 90s is this extraordinarily well-documented decade, and getting some of the mindset behind the items as they were created both breaks through the mythology, but also gives you a little more of kind of the original intent around them, which um, obviously is a little tangential to to critique, but certainly in terms of getting the larger context, I think is really important oftentimes.
2: Um, for me, I just. <clears throat> I just read a lot of other people's reviews. I mean, I go in and, you know, usually games that I I've played and I have an opinion on, I will go in and I'll I'll read I'll read their review and say like what what did they what did they do here? What did they address here? Like do I agree with some of these things and I kind of figure out why, and then I kind of pit them against other reviewers and pit them against, you know, other people that are reviewed games the same way and say like you know where where was this person's holes and where was this per, where, what perspective was this person coming from and I and I try and I try and parse that out and I try and, and I, I try and see like where these people are coming from and I and I kind of take that in, and I use that as kind of a base and kind of take it into account as I as I go along when I and then when I when I go do my own reviews I say hey you know I have a I have a perspective, I guess, and I have I have other people, I mean, I, I'm, I have practice, I guess, at, at uh, st- like, reviewing games in a way that kind of looks at things from a different perspective because, like, I kind of train myself to look for the, to parse things out, I guess, in other people's works.
1: Paul, you have anything to add most,
0: on becoming uh, a better critic? My, well, most of my inspirations for where I'm trying to, what I would, Ideally, like to do come from like literary theory or critical theory or or film theory from basically, but I mean nothing I do ends up being anywhere close to what I want it to be. But I'm i talking about like people like Truffaut uh, for film, Hayden White for uh, just kind of historical narrative, uh, Deleuze and Guattari for just psychological, political craziness (laughs) to the point. But I mean, yeah, none of that really comes through in the, the way that I approach the works. Though. Uh, those are just kind of the inspirations. I don't really I don't really read many other crit- critics unless they're people I know.
3: So, I, know. Well, I have two more additions. Um, one is uh, I love a critic who works for AV Club called, called uh, named Nathan Rubin. He wrote a long series called My Year of Flops in which he looked at um, yeah. films that are notorious flops and analyzes them to see how good or bad they actually are. and um, He does it in a really charming, kind of hilarious attitude oftentimes um, and it really kind of changes your perspective on what you're reading. It's a uh, kind of very enlightening book and also kind of talks a bit about the whole question of going against the grain and kind of creating your own opinions. Um, the other is um, what I consider foundational for me is Harlan Ellison's Glass Teeth books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh yes, I can't recommend that enough. Uh, who, which uh, we I, you can see we all agree are very insightful books that combine a great passion with great uh, thoughtful criticism in a way that's kind of revelatory. Um, it, it may be a little distancing now because the TV shows that he's writing about are so far in the past that um, I, most people don't remember them at all, but the approach and the attitude is fascinating.
1: Hmm. Okay. Anything else anyone wants to add, or we'll get to wrapping up? I've got one more thing, uh, which is I found that
4: the more that you get out of the bubble of the particular uh, media that you're addressing, the more you read criticism about other kinds of things, the more flexible you get at understanding what your own thing is really about. One of the one of the fun examples of this uh, – well, you mentioned a glass tea, but another one that I bumped into was uh, a book by Frederick Pohl from a ways back called science fiction studies and film and while it's generally a critical history um, it also has a lot of details in there about contemporaneous reactions to things and about the ways that something that we now consider today to be popular classic or regarded in the day as trash like the way the way that he more or less condemns movies like alien is really funny um, hmm. so those, those instruct him in the sense that you get the idea that criticism is not always about being right it's about having a perspective and being able to defend it and also understanding where that pr- critical perspective came from the more of that you can find the better especially from, from different sources
0: anything else then um, there is one other author that I would recommend um, although it's, it's work that he's since distanced himself from a uh, writer named Brian McHale. His earlier books, Postmodern Fiction, and I believe Constructing Postmodernity, are both really very strong uh, looks at the way contemporary uh, works are put together. He's, he, like I say, he since distanced himself from has kind of changed politically, but those are two books that I, when I read I, they changed the way I looked at uh, at media.
1: Seriously, it sounds worth it. Anything else then, or we'll be wrapping this up? I'm curious about the, him changing his opinions politically. What, what
3: happened there?
0: I honestly don't know. Uh, I haven't read any of his later stuff. I just know that he's gone back and he's kind of disowned these first couple of books, and I, I I'm not sure why. It's, it's something I should go in and look up and check out. But but these books, I mean, they they were like my introductions to postmodernism, and that's like my central. Postmodernism and anarchism, are like my central ways of approaching and thinking about art, life, everything, and this was one of the books that did it.
3: Sorry, can I can I go into one more point? Though Steve wants us to wrap oh, up, but no, no, I brought up an interesting point there. Um, well, there's many interesting points there that we could probe into them a lot. But um, I'm curious if um, everyone approaches their career with any sort of um, general philosophy about approaching it you know, there's Marxist theory there's uh, as, as Paul pointed out postmodern theory etc um, do you do any of you kind of approach your work in a specific way or do you allow the work to, to kind of mold itself for you
4: I, I try not to be too bound up in any one particular theoretical approach I mean most of the theoretical approaches that I have are things that I more or less bubbled up on my own like few people consciously set out to make a bad piece of work I think that, that by itself encapsulates a lot of where my critical approach comes from. You know, it, They may not set out to do that but that doesn't mean that they necessarily end up with something good. So yeah, a lot of it is more about That's you know, definitely
0: something that should be always taken into consideration. Right. A few people so a figure they're going to
4: screw up. Individual bits of wisdom that come up and form a critical, you know uh, an overarching critical umbrella theory rather than something that, that I would consciously put a, a label to. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Well, the, the postmodern approach that I, that I mentioned that that based, I know there's like a million different interpretations and definitions of postmodernism, but my own introduction to it and the way it, it affected me personally was just it it opened up the idea that there are countless uh, narrative threads constructing everything that we uh, look at as art or, or life really, but we're just talking about art. Um, and that you the just a, the creation of a work of art is so improbable <laughs> to begin with that when something has, something is created it's it's rarely ever entirely what the artist re- intended to create and so that's one of the things that I like to approach when I'm doing my own is to not if I'm going to look at the artist's int- intention it's basically just to see if I think that they. If they've stated an intention or if an intention is obvious, I might discuss whether or not they really satisfied what they had intended to do. But the artist's intention is so far down the list of things that I'm interested in when I'm writing about a work that uh, it's it's basically uh, just negligible. It doesn't matter. I don't care what the artist wanted to do.
3: Yeah, I... I, I'm a big believer in not caring about the artist's intention as well. I, I think that's interesting, but I think it's just as important or, in fact, more important to judge on your interpretation of their, what they deliver as that old saw that art is no longer the artist's possession once it's in the reader's hands. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and I think it's interesting also. I mean, if I were to take a, a, use a term for my own approach, I'd say it's maybe Uh, anatomical. I almost wanted to say deconstructionist, but I don't want to pull everything apart and and determine what what's, uh, you know... Yeah, I don't want to be a vivisectionist. I just want to kind of explore the anatomy of something.
1: You want to be an anatomist or an analyst. You want to get where the pieces come together not tear it apart and ask why it doesn't work then.
3: Well, when I think of the the works that um, help to inform my take on the world and and, um, in talking about critique that influenced us, I completely somehow neglected to talk about the influence that the comics journalist had on me. I've been reading the comics journal since I was literally a teenager, and every issue of the journal has um, smart, interesting critique, often mm-hmm. kind of um, paradigm-changing critique on, on comics art. And um, I've from that I've kind of come up with an aesthetic myself of the way that I approach the art. The most interesting pieces I've read are pieces that talk about why something works, how a state, how a page construction, for example, or panel arrangement, or, um, the, the way that, uh, those one or two lines may change a, a, a story or, uh, a, a scene. Um, that's very interesting to me. I, to me, that's the most interesting sort of critique is, um, to find out why something does or doesn't work.
1: Or how it could work, too.
3: Or how it could work better.
1: Sir, Darno you've done several things to that approach, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't always like to say um, how something could be done
4: better unless I feel that the work fails in such a basic way that I really don't have anything else substantial to say about it. I mean, the, the piece that I'm looking at right now, which I'll be publishing in the next couple of days, does have a little bit of that flavor to it because I think – that there's, an, there's a missed opportunity there that to me is really, really illustrative. Um, but for the most part, I, I say to myself, okay, you know, go by John Updike's rule look, look at what was actually produced and not what you'd like to see there and criticize that. But sometimes something just clearly misses the boat, or at least it does to you. And if that's what's most on your mind, then by all means, talk about it, but at least lay the prejudices that you have on the
1: table. That's, I think, important. Some people don't.
4: Well, it's
3: presumptuous to tell a creator how to create their own work. Um, one of my friends has a, a line he likes to say, which is review the work that's in front of you, not the work you want to read.
1: Nicely said. Well, gentlemen, we do need to get to wrapping up. I, As the non-critic here, I want to say this was incredibly informative. And I'm sure we'll be addressing critique more in the podcasts to come, though maybe we'll take a break after two podcasts on the subject. Are there any last uh, roundup questions? Let's go to Jason, or statements actually. Jason? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, uh, I always if, have If left. you have any answers, I will provide detailed questions.
3: I always have many questions. That's that's kind of what I do. Um, no, I, I think that the most important thing is to stop the marketplace of ideas and create, to read as many different takes as you want. If you really want to be a good critic, I think it's important to get different perspectives and just think about things in a more philosophical way. And I think the most important point, um, Paul emphasizes this brilliantly, I think, is to get get outside your head and think about other ways of thinking about things because that will help you think better yourself.
1: Okay.
4: Sirdar. Um a- Examining your own work and your own self habitually is also a good thing. There are times that I'll dig out an older review that I wrote two or three or five years ago and say what works, what doesn't, and that can be very illustrative, that can show you how far you've gone, or maybe also how far you've progressed, but um, you always want to be looking into a mirror and thinking thinking carefully about where you're coming from and why and where you could be going.
1: Here's Paul?
0: Um, just people should keep in mind that when they're writing criticism, they they are writing. It's It's a creative engagement with the work, and it's a lot of times, you're, well, you should be putting as much emphasis on your, your approach to the construction of the critique as you are paying attention to the artist's uh, work in the construction of the work. Um, yeah, just read more, immerse yourself, get to know yourself better.
2: <laughs> and finally, Jose. Sure. Um, I think critique is an exercise in self-reflection. I think the more you know about yourself, the the better you are able to look at somebody else's work.
1: All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll see you again in another two weeks, and who knows what subject we'll discuss, but I'm sure we'll return to this one again. Signing off, Crossroads Alpha Podcast. Ring us out, Jose. All
0: right. And- it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?